0: In World War II, my grandmother was about to be shot into a pit. She turned to the guard and said, what happens if I step out of line? And he said, well, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody probably will. She stepped out of line. And for that, I am here today. And for that, my children are here today. So step out of line, ladies, step out of line.
1: My guest today is General Mary Etter. General Etter entered the United States Army in 1977 after receiving her commission as a second lieutenant in the single corps. Over the next 36 years, General Etter commanded at the company, battalion, brigade, and division level. In 2009, she was appointed commanding general of the United States Army Reserve Joint and Special Troops Support Command. At the time of her retirement, she was the senior woman general in the Army Reserve and one of only six in the Army at the time 1.2 1.2 million serving. General Etter recently wrote The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line, Untold Stories of the Woman Who Changed the Course of World War II. The book takes you inside the lives and experiences of 15 unknown women heroes from the greatest generation, the woman who served, fought, struggled, and made things happen during World War II. I recently sat down with General Etter and we talked about her life in the Army as a female general and what motivated her to to tell the stories of these courageous ladies. General, thank you so much for agreeing to appear on the show. I, I was looking forward to this since we spoke last week, and we touched base, and uh, your book really jumped out at me, which we're going to talk about in a minute, but thanks so much for being here.
0: Oh, thank you, and I now subscribe to your newsletter, and I think I can actually figure it out and follow it, so that's, that's wonderful.
1: Well, you know, I I write it literally at no joke. Uh, When my mother was alive, I used to put every, I used to start every newsletter off on on my computer, Dear Mom, and I would write everything. And if there was one part that I felt she wouldn't be able to understand, I had to explain it. So at the end, uh, uh, it was something that uh, my mother could understand. And I figured if she could understand it, and she wasn't a Ph.D. in finance, Anyone could understand, and that's what I, I try to always achieve. And I'm, I'm so glad you said that, and thanks so much for subscribing. greatly appreciate that. Thank you. Um, okay, so you just recently wrote a book. You have a couple of other books. We'll talk about them a in little, a little while, uh, basically, for the, um, for the military. You wrote a book and also a book on leadership. But this book, The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line, tell me where you got the idea to write this book from and, and why, why you had a book in you.
0: Well, I think I have many fiction books that I would like to write. And some of them I have written already, which I will need to go back to. Because even as I left the Army after 36 years, I found that I had to start myself over with writing, to write in different ways, to write better, to write conversation. But for this book, I had been asked to speak at a leadership and ethics conference. And I had just read the story about Stephanie Czech Radar who had just passed away and the army was looking to present her at her funeral with the Legion of Merit, an award she should have received many years earlier. So it was a a story about her service, what she had done. She was a counterintelligence agent at the end of the war and I was just fascinated. So I saved it and I used it as part of my presentation along with several other obituaries I had read at the time because the greatest generation is continuing to pass in ever greater numbers right now. So many of them are at least 100 years old or or very close to that. So I had three or four of these stories saved coming up into 2019 when I heard the presentation at the Emmy Awards. and We talked about this earlier where, where Alex Borstein received the award for Best Supporting Actress.
1: And that was in um, the the um, um, marvelous uh, marvelous Mrs. Maisel, right? She was that character. That yes, she was hysterical. She was actually great.
0: So I know you've heard it, but I can tell you again what she yeah, said. Yeah, no, no,
1: right? definitely. Uh, so so she wins the award, uh, 2019. She wins the uh, best supporting actress in a comedy. She gets up, she says a couple of funny lines, and then she says something that really sparks uh, not only a book, a title, a mission. Uh, really drives drives into you.
0: What she said was, and she was talking fast because they don't have much time, but she said, in World War II, my grandmother was about to be shot into a pit. She turned to the guard and said, what happens if I step out of line? And he said, well, I don't have the heart to shoot you, but somebody probably will. She stepped out of line. And for that, I am here today. And for that, my children are here today. So step out of line, ladies, step out of line.
1: And when you heard that and you already had uh, information on Stephanie check radar, uh, you had one or two others. That's what motivated you to write this book. You felt that this book, these stories needed to be told.
0: It was, it was an immediate connection. It was, that was it. That's what they did. And I know there are others. When you read this book, it's not about what job people had. Many Books you see about World War II were about units or missions or specific units or types of jobs people had. But to me, it's not about what they did. It's about the life lessons they learned, the connections they made, the networks they built, and what the whole experience, the effect it had on them, and how it changed them, and how it changed a generation and the generations to come.
1: And in this book, you showcase, you write about. I think it's 15 different ladies, right, in World War II who hardly ever got any recognition, many of them. Many of them uh, did really harrowing stuff, which nobody knew about yet at certain times was pivotable, pivotal to the cause of the war. They showed extreme heroism at a time where ladies, females, especially World War II, were pushed to the back.
0: And many of them had that same attitude that I think everyone in that era did. Well, I just did my part. I just did my bit. Oh, I don't, I didn't deserve any awards. Um, Virginia Hall had to do reports from the field. She was really the part of the OSS that I think is the forerunner to special operations. She trained insurgents behind enemy lines. And in one of her reports, one of the standard questions was, were you decorated during, during your duty? Did you receive any awards? And her, Her one line answer was no, nor was there any need to be. I just want to do my job. And that's what you heard over and over with them is I just wanted to do my job. I'm proving to myself that I can do this. I'm not even sure I need to prove it to others. But I'm showing that I am capable and I am making a difference. And that's what's important.
1: So how did you gather? How did first of all, how did you select? By the way, uh, you know, I was briefing through your book over the weekend, and what's what's what I really enjoyed about it is each chapter, and the chapters aren't long; it's fifteen or so minutes of reading. Uh, each chapter is one character, one female hero, and you can skip around and go anywhere you want. It's really great stories, and I, I like what you did. You showed a connection between every one of those women in different chapters, even though they might not have known each other, but you tried to bridge it. Why did you do that?
0: I was amazed at finding that. I would have thought it's a big world. It's a, it's, they were in wildly, wildly different places doing such different things. And to find that some of them knew of the others had been at the same place at the same time, or like Betty McIntosh who worked with the OSS in China that she helped, her her primary job was propaganda and misinformation, but she also helped when it was an all hands event to get teams together to go to China, go to the Eastern part of China where the Japanese prison camps had just been liberated and make sure the Japanese soldiers didn't kill Americans. So she helped them all to work on that to go there. And one of the other people in my book is a 12 year old girl who'd spent five years of her childhood in one of those camps. So there is a connection there. And Betty McIntosh was also well aware of Virginia Hall as a a spy. She was also well aware of Stephanie Radar. So there there are connections and it's the connections I think that fascinated me.
1: So before you wrote this book, these ladies, other than Virginia Hall, maybe one or two others, they were really unknown to the public.
0: Some of them might've been known in their local communities, a few never talked about their experiences, and when they did begin to speak, well, okay, I'll I'll go to this veterans event, they were in their 70s or 80s when they finally talked about what they did. A few of them said to me, now, there's two veterans who are living, and I, when I talked to them, I said, well, did you talk to your children about what you did in the war? And she said, no, they never asked, but I wish I'd been able to tell my parents.
1: Wow. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a hard question now. Well, first of all, before I ask you a hard question, one thing I do when I, because I, I know when I wrote my book, I know it becomes, and I, I, I probably will never write another book again. It really sucks the lifeblood out of you. It's like, it becomes like a term paper that you have to prepare and the deadline uh, keeps creeping up on you and you can't sleep, you can't eat, and all you do is think about writing and you you rewrite and you keep, because it's, it's going down there and it's going to be... It has to be, for me, and I'm sure you, uh, it has to be perfect. And you have to research. I remember I spent in my book, just on one footnote, I, li- I think I spent eight to 10 hours just trying to confirm it and just see another source of it. So, and I was writing about investing. You were writing about people. And I'm sure that you, had, uh, you felt the burden of getting it right just to really celebrate their lives and respect uh, their memory.
0: I did. And it was especially hard to write this during... The last or the first few months of the pandemic. So I'm writing this in January, February, March of last year. So as I was getting into the writing and I had that deadline, I had that sense of dread as the deadline approaches. I find that I can't talk to museums, Mm. libraries, I can't get to the National Archives, the Library of Congress. So some of my sources are closed or shut down or unavailable to me. So in many cases, what I ended up doing was buying books. So I have a really good library right now of books, but it also made me do the right thing in finding these books and go back to original sources. So I have Charity Adams uh, autobiography she published in 1947 or Alice Marble's book called The Road to Wimbledon that she published in the 30s and her biography right after that. And a lot of these are stamped with whatever high school they came from or college that gave them up. So so for those who've had to give up good books, just know they have a home now Mm -hmm. with me and I Mm -hmm. have them all.
1: And were you speaking to any of these ladies you said about how many were still living when you were writing this?
0: Two were still living. I have spoken to many families. Uh, For the most part, it took me quite a while to track down families and Uh, It was difficult. I would find places they'd spoken to before, interviews they had done, and I would try to find those reporters, photographers, outlets, and track them that way. It didn't always work. There were a few I was not able to find any any family members or references for them, but for the most part, I found a great number of families to talk to, and even, even in some of the simple things they said, it was just amazing their views, so I talked to Kate Flynn Nolan's children. They had seven children. She was the nurse in the book, combat nurse in a heavy casualty hospital, about five foot three, like me, nearly got washed away in the waves at Normandy because she landed there two weeks after the first troops with her unit and went the whole way to the end of the war. It was amazing. So I talked to her children, she had two of her sons fought in Vietnam, one in Iraq, and a granddaughter in Afghanistan. So there is a family legacy of service, and the example that she set, which I thought was was amazing.
1: So out of the fifteen uh, heroes in your book, I know it's a tough question, but which one is your favorite?
0: I don't have any favorites. It, you can ask me tomorrow, and it would be a different person.
1: Okay, I'm asking you today. Who's the who's the who's a favorite for today?
0: Well, today I've been thinking quite a lot about Mary Taylor Previty, the 12-year-old girl, because she spent five years of her childhood in that camp. When she grows up, she teaches high school English, is married, divorced, and actually what happens to her is she becomes the director of a juvenile detention center. Who better to understand kids behind bars than someone who spent their childhood behind a barbed wire fence, watching Japanese soldiers practice how to kill them if they tried to escape.
1: Right, this is like a Steven Spielberg's, uh, when I was looking through that, uh, Steven Spielberg's movie, um, uh, what was the name of it, uh, where it talks about the Japanese invasion of uh, Shanghai. Um, Empire of the Sun, Empire of the Sun, mm-hmm. where it has, um, uh, I think it's Christian Bale, a young Christian Bale who's taken from his, who's separated from his parents and put in a Japanese camp and spends a, a couple of years there under uh, brutal conditions. It's, it's really a great movie, I really, because that's a facet of the war I never knew much about. And this young girl, uh, could you just share with us how she got there, what she was doing there, what were her parents doing there?
0: Her parents were missionaries and so were her grandparents. <clears throat> how she got there was the Japanese surrounded the boarding school where she was. It was a boarding school for Westerners. And when the camp was liberated, they discovered there were about 1,500 people there, um, all nationalities. They had a band. The band practiced playing the national anthem for the U.S. and England. So they, they played the day that the rescuers parachuted in. And they parachuted in on August 17th. So VJ Day was the 15th, and the Jetberg teams, the OSS teams, arrived two days later. So they were there for about a month before the children were put on an army plane and taken back three hours, flying three hours West to go back to be reunited with their parents. So for those three weeks, it was making sure everyone was healthy enough to travel They're parachuting in food. And when they did, the kids had to hide inside so that they didn't get hit on the head with a can of peaches or something like that. <clears throat> but after the book came out and her daughter received a copy of it. I heard from her and she said, I always think of August 17th is not, or the 15th is not being VJ day, but being liberation day. Because if my mother hadn't been liberated and saved, I wouldn't be here now, which kind of goes back to the title. So I keep hearing sentiments like that from the family members I talked to.
1: So you dedicated this book which I'm sure a lot of thought went into this. You dedicated this book to your great-grandmother, Harriet Patterson Greer. Why her?
0: An inspiration. She was an immigrant to this country, came when she was 16 in 1870, along with her 10 brothers and sisters. One stayed in England. I thought maybe he fell off the boat or had to stay with the parents, but... so. It's trying to understand the situation at the time. So to leave everything and to think you'll never go back at that age, they came with nothing. They had nothing. Uh, They came to a very small town in Western Pennsylvania, which is still a very small town. It's called Stoneboro. The population's about 850 to start over and to make it work. So, That drive is what I recognized in many of the people in this book, like Hilda Eisen, who came to this country with nothing of her entire family, except for a small piece of embroidery she found on the wall of the kitchen after being repatriated back to her hometown. So it's learning more about the situations that people faced and not just what they did. So it's it's the family story. Yes, they all came here then but it's not knowing what that meant and how hard that really was. For example, all of the people in the book who joined the military, all of their orders said for the duration plus six months. So it wasn't just you go now and you do your bid and you come home to a parade. That meant they didn't know how long they'd be there. Four years, five years, plus six months. That's just incredible to me.
1: Right, especially with communications the way they were then. Uh, there was no FaceTime, there was no seeing anyone. Uh, letters took a week or so to get uh, from, from recipient to, to sender. It was a while. It, it was crazy, uh, absolutely, uh, you know, hence the greatest generation. So do, do you think, you know, you, 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 what, there were six females who achieved your rank in the Army out of 1.2 million served. Is that more or less right?
0: Um, it fluctuates depending on who's still on active duty, who leaves, who gets promoted. But <clears throat> around that time in the Army, active Army, Army Reserve, that's about right.
1: Okay. So you went to the Army in 1977. And did you grow up as a little girl saying, you know, I'm going to join the military. I want to be a general while well, all of the kids are playing maybe cops and robbers or with dolls?
0: No idea. Never, Never had a thought about it. I was probably on my bicycle trying to get across the road to where the ice cream stand was. Um, never, Never had a thought about doing anything with the military until I was in college and I had friends who had graduated earlier, who had joined and were having experiences that would help them with jobs later or help them later in life. And I thought I could do that, too.
1: So you, you were you were joining the army at the time when I think it was at the end of Vietnam. Vietnam was over. I think it was seventy five or so. You entered the army in seventy seven. So this is under uh, President Jimmy Carter. Time wasn't good. The military was being cut back. American prestige was in the toilet. It was just absolutely terrible. <clears throat> I remember those times as being so depressing, especially living in New York, uh, where it was a couple of years before President Ford said to New York City, "Drop dead." That was a famous sign that. New York was bankrupt. It was it was terrible. It was it was just a malaise in the country. It was just, ugh. and the military, which most was not looked upon as something good. They were, uh, I remember the the uh, the vets coming home. They were called baby killers, and they suffered indignities coming back. And you want to <clears> join the army?
0: There is a lot to be said for naivete. That sometimes it can lead you to, to doors that if you knew better, you probably wouldn't open. So at the time, what I saw was an opportunity to leave the small town, to learn new things and have different experiences. And I wasn't, I really wasn't clever enough to see beyond that at that time. I really was not.
1: Wow. Uh, lucky for us, you didn't. So you, you joined the Army in 1977. You turn around, it's 36 years later. Did you think you'd stay in the Army for 36 years?
0: I thought I'd stay for three years. I stayed for five because as you said it was a terrible time <clears throat> in the country and in the military it was not a great time to be in the army it was not a positive place to work well what People was it like not- what's
1: when, when just i'm sorry to interrupt when you wore your uniform and i remember at the time feeling so terrible for vets and they came home they took off the uniforms never to put them on again i remember i think it was 86 or so 1986 or 87 i think it was 86 maybe, there was finally in New York City, <clears throat> down Broadway, a, um, a parade for Vietnam vets. And the mood of the crowd was so incredible. And this was, people were spitting on these poor people when they came home 10 years or so, or 11 years before. And now there was like, we understand what you went through and how difficult it was and what PTSD did to so many of them, which wasn't recognized as well. But what was it like to be wearing a uniform In 1977.
0: Well, you know, what's interesting at that time was you talked about people coming back from Vietnam and the way they were treated. They were all draftees. They didn't choose to go. Their number came up and they went. Many people, older people, uh, older veterans at that time had been in Korea. So there were even still a few who might have been in World War II and Korea and then the beginnings of Vietnam. So they saw the difference in these types of conflicts and what they meant to the country. So at the time when I first came in, it was, you didn't wear it when you traveled. It wasn't a good idea to be recognized in uniform.
1: I was discouraged?
0: It was discouraged.
1: Discouraged? It was
0: discouraged later when I was in Europe, too, because it wasn't safe to be recognized as a member of U.S. forces.
1: Well, in the United States, you're telling me from military brass really sent the orders down uh, or discouraged, rather, it was an un- unwritten, unwritten law, if you will, don't wear your uniform in civilian life when you walk around civilians. Really? Right. Wow. Wow, it's amazing. I never knew that.
0: <clears throat> it also means you're not representing the military in the public eye. And over the years, as we've had drawdowns and changes in the number of bases, many Americans don't even know someone who has served or is serving. So right now it's less than 1% of the country who does serve. So be out there, be out there in the uniform and be recognized and be thanked. You mentioned this parade. So when, if you come, think about draftees coming home who are not recognized, and yet we have parades today for the all-volunteer force, it doesn't make much sense, does it, when you think about it logically that why wouldn't we have recognized the people who, their country called upon them and they went, rather than those who volunteered to serve. Not that I, I'm saying they shouldn't be recognized, but it doesn't make sense the dichotomy in how people look at that those two types of service.
1: So in Europe, I remember at the time also before uh, President Reagan, uh, Europe was a dangerous place for Americans.
0: Yes, yes, I remember uh, certainly there were kidnappings at the time, there were gangs, There's nothing like being stopped on the Audubon and watching the police run by you carrying the Uzis, and you don't know who they're after or what is going on. But the German police definitely do not. um, They do not slow down. They do not ask questions. They take action. And so at that time, it was you follow you follow their direction if there is anything that happens outside of the base, because. As you said, there were, were a lot of issues going on there with the safety of U.S. troops. We also had a lot of issues with Russia at the time. We had, we had trips even going to East Berlin when there were still the two Germanys. I had a high security clearance, so I never got to go on one of those trips. So I made sure a couple years ago I did.
1: Wait. So during that time period, during the Cold War, American troops uh, had uh, they were who were these trips sponsored by to go into East Berlin? Who took it? It was a
0: called a familiarization trip, or you could go to see what East and West were like to understand the meaning of your service there. Because at the time, the main enemy of this country or the main adversary was Russia. So will they come to the Folder Gap? Well what will happen if there is a conflict? And so it was showing how they how they lived, and how things were under communism. So it was letting people go to have a view of what this was like.
1: And who, but that was controlled by the Soviet Union. Who let you in there? Who let these emerge? Americans...
0: It was going to Berlin. You would look over the wall. You didn't go in.
1: Oh, so you went? I got you. So you went up to the wall. You just looked over and saw the right what the I got you because I was wondering like they're not going to let you into those the Soviets. Yeah, it was a terrible time. In 79, on Christmas Day, uh, December 25th, the invasion of Afghanistan, uh, uh, which was uh, uh, just, oh, uh, I just remember the malaise. It was just, <laughs> it really was terrible. And it, it, you're in the military there, so you, you only thought you'd be there for five years. That would take you to 82. So you were in there during the Carter administration. And you, did you start seeing things change when Ronald Reagan became president?
0: <clears throat> I can I vaguely remember the talks about Now there's going to be more funding to rebuild our military. So at that point, I was in the reserves. I had left the active army and joined the reserves. I love the reserves.
1: Could you explain to me what the reserves are?
0: I joined the Army Reserve. There is also the Army Guard, which also has the state component of support to the state, which is what is true of all guard units, air guard or or Army Guard. But in the Army Reserve, I was in Virginia in what was then a training unit, meaning if there is a major mobilization and active duty units leave deploy, this unit will be activated to take over basic training or basic infantry training. So So this was a great unit to be part of.
1: Okay, so you're you're in this unit. What now? What makes you re up after five years? You say, okay, I'm going to give it. What makes you continue onward?
0: Still, there is the need to have these kind of colleagues and friends that you can't find any other way, I don't think, in any other profession. Because when you are side-by-side going through difficult times, even if it's a training day, and it's in the rain, and it's in the mud, and it's just unpleasant, whatever you do with a group of people that you would never have met, known, become friends with, even colleagues with otherwise you develop a bond that stays with you. And that was what I had missed.
1: Did you have brothers and sisters growing up?
0: I had an older brother and an older sister.
1: Were you close to them?
0: No, they were much older than I. My brother was eight years older and my sister was six years older.
1: So when you're in the military, you become, you know these are your brothers and sisters now. This is your family. This is your family. And how is it for a woman? You said you're 5'3", so you're not a big commanding presence. Uh, You're 5'3". You're one of very few in the military. How do you make your way in such a uh, male-dominated
0: culture? You know, it's one of those things that you just can't think about. You know, I've described it before as like being on a tightrope. You can do what you're supposed to do. We're going to tell you to walk this way, take this weapon, shoot this target, and you go do it. You don't pay attention to the voices around you or those who are watching to see if you fail. And you definitely don't look down to see if you will fail. You're given a task, you go complete the task and you do it as best you can. You make sure you understand it, what you're supposed to do, how you do it, you watch how it's done and you go do it. Much of the training is done in this way so that if you're in a uh, situation that is dangerous or frightening, that you automatically do the right things and in the right order. So there's some repetition involved with some of these tasks. But once you've mastered those, there are levels and levels of access and um, cards that get you in the door and experiences you have to get you to certain points. But once you get to those points, and one of the things we say is anyone you look at across the front of their uniform, they're wearing their entire career with all of those ribbons. Mm. So you. You can tell, I can tell where you've been and what years and, oh, you were here and you did this. So it's a, we call them credibility badges, some of them. So it gives you instant recognition, credibility. And then then it starts the dance of, oh, you were here at those years. Did you know so-and-so? Yes, I did. And did you know this person? And we get to where there's two degrees of separation everywhere you go. It's not six. It really is two.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Um, so was there a lot of animosity from men, uh, for having you around and and other women like you?
0: Of course there is that, and there, it exists. So there's, I wouldn't say it's a lot. I would say it exists with those who might think you're taking the job away that I could have had. You're taking something from me, not that we can both succeed together. And I was familiar, familiar with that, um, I was surprised by it at times, and other times you grow to expect it, but it doesn't, it doesn't touch you. The part of me that is me is small and protected and internal so that I can navigate and I don't let any of that bother me. I don't react to it. I don't become angry about it. I don't lash out. I just keep going.
1: How'd you take those lessons and and use them in your civilian life and a post-army life?
0: Well, I think they become part of who you are. Your post-army life, um, every guy I know grows a beard for a while. You know, there's there's the the reactions we know we're going to have, just a little bit of rebellion there. So, so when I first retired, I ate ice cream every day for six months and then had to lose all that weight. <laughs> but, but I got to enjoy it for a little bit. And then the discipline comes back because it's always there.
1: women in combat during that time period?
0: During that time period, we went through every phase of uh, don't ask, don't tell, to right, the right, changing right. that to women in combat, removing combat exclusions, to now, and I think it's just been several years that women are able to go to any job in which they can achieve the standards. Which which is which makes sense. We can't have separate standards because reality doesn't change depending right. on whether you're five foot three or six foot five.
1: Right, 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 right. If you have to drink someone from a Humvee, uh, um, you, you got to be X amount of muscle and strength. And uh, you don't want someone who got there simply because she checked the right box.
0: Exactly. Because it's going to put, put everyone else in danger.
1: Right, right. Or you
0: have to do the same things and do them just as well.
1: So you, you commanded uh, at the company, battalion, brigade, and division level. And all throughout your, pardon the pun, your march upwards in your career, were you like thinking every morning, oh, I'm, I want to be major general. I, I want to move up. I want to be, or just, it's, it's kind of, see, I've never been in the military. I have just awe and respect. In fact, many of the, several of the guests on my show have been Navy SEALs and, and people yeah. who served with, uh, with distinction. Uh, so uh, I am totally in awe of, of people like yourself who've given so much service. So uh, uh, you wake up every morning and say, because I know in the business world, we, a lot of people do that. I want to get to the next level. I want to get to the next level. How is that for you?
0: Well, there, there's time. There's timed gates for the next level, if you will. So you can wake up in the morning and look at the book that says you must do these things before you get to that gate and which is just like investing you must you must do these things so you know what you should do you put it down and then you go off and do them but you don't look at the book again for another year you don't look at all mm-hmm. your investments for another year because you would get too caught up in day to day am i not am i doing the right thing so if you put them away and look at them a year later you go i think i'm on track check put it away so my goal was always i want to make lieutenant colonel i've done all the things i should do and I didn't do them thinking, I don't want to do this one, but I'm going to have to. I did it with, I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to enjoy this opportunity. I'm going to learn from it everything I can. And my ultimate goal was to, and this was, wasn't was certain, this was, well, maybe, I hope, I could make colonel. 11% made, at my time made colonel out of all of the lieutenant colonels being considered. So that was a big step. I never thought I would make general. I didn't plan for that. I was totally surprised by it. Um, and it was a big shock.
1: Well, why were you surprised? What? How does that work where all of a sudden you wake up one morning and some, some military brass comes in and says, uh, I'll make you general. How does that work?
0: Mm, they're all boards where the board doesn't see you in person. They see your picture. They see your file of all the things you've done. They see how you were. Rated in your performance. So you're judged on that. <clears throat> Only when you get to the board that considers you for colonel are people allowed to, the people on the board, which are other generals, allowed to actually say, I know this person, I think they would be good. So, or I know this person and I don't think so.
1: Right. So you got to that level and they all gave you the thumbs up. Were there any women sitting on that on that panel?
0: I'm sure there were. I'm sure there was at least one. The board also gets guidance from Department of the Army that says this year we all want you to make sure you look at providing equal opportunity to every member who, who comes before this board. And don't just look at those who may not have had an opportunity to. Because we don't always choose the job. So someone has not had the opportunity to have a certain job. You can't judge them negatively.
1: So you didn't get into this simply because you were, you know, uh... Affirmative action type, you got in there basically on your merits. Yes. Wow. So there were only, what, six, let's go a handful, you could pull you and all, all of all the females in one room out of one million plus serving at the time. When you walked into a room uh, and you had all of these uh, subordinates stand for you, uh, were they shocked? When they saw a woman walk in the room with your rank, because you weren't that there weren't that many of them around.
0: Well, the first few times that happened, I looked around to make sure, to see <laughs> if there was someone behind me who they were standing for. So, are you are
1: you serious or is that joking? Are you, are you? No, was, I'm serious. You're I'm serious. serious huh?
0: it was, it's a big adjustment. It's it's very much. It's not just a step up. It's like a two levels. So it's <clears throat> a big adjustment with how everything works now. So in the next job I had the. Admin people in the office had to tell me, stop answering the phone. We'll answer the phone. We'll tell you when it's for you. I said, but I'm perfectly capable. No, don't do that. We're going to do it. So it was a learning experience. It's not, it's not because you are such, at such a high level, you're a better person. It's because we do this so you are freed up to work more. And that's what you're selected for. It's potential which shows you can do the work. So by showing, not that you're a workaholic, but that you understand strategy, you know how to put plans together. You can, you manage projects and lead people and you know how to make a whole large organization follow your vision. So it is putting all of that together that is the reason they promote you.
1: So when you got to be major general, how many people were under your command?
0: So as the deputy chief of the reserve at that time, the army reserve was 205,000 people. So my boss, the three-star general was the commander of the army reserve. And at the same time, he was also the army reserve advisor on the army staff. And I was the second behind him. So to be given my own command then is a, a a symbol of trust we think you can go do this and it was brand new so it started on day one with me and one other person and then over the next six months to 18 months we grew it to something like 18 units and over 6,000 people that is not much it certainly could be and probably is by now two to three times that but it, with every step of that growth, there is all of the logistics and the buildings and the support staff and the everything that goes with that. That's it's not difficult to put together, but it's uh, cumbersome and it's bureaucratic. What is, the, what
1: is the biggest change? You came into the army at 1977, and you left 36 years later at what 2015 or 2016 or so?
0: 2013.
1: 2013. What was the biggest, one thing that was the biggest change that you saw in your career?
0: I think the biggest thing I saw was by the time I left, I had utter total confidence in the senior leadership of this organization. If you want to look at something comparable in size that's global, maybe it's GM or something of that level, but to have a global presence in an organization that is focused on values. So this is a values-based organization. I think it was when I was first in the Pentagon that the Army developed. It's uh, the soldier's creed. This is who we are. This is what we believe in. I am an American soldier. I am a warrior and a member of a team. I will always put the mission first. And there are several other parts to this, but it goes to having everyone who is on this massive team believe in and support the same ideals.
1: Oh, outstanding. Outstanding. So do you speak uh, to uh, young women in high school or in college uh, about what you've done and what the possibilities are, not even the military, but just uh, what is out there for them?
0: Yeah, I do. I I do some um, mentoring in some local high schools here in Virginia. And in Florida, where I have friends who call on me um, back in my own high schools and my college. So I go back there, too.
1: No, outstanding. And what's the reception with the girls that you that you speak to the young girls? Do they look at you and say you're like uh, an enigma that you're so out of whack or like, holy smokes?
0: Um, well, if they know what a general is, they're holy smokes. If they don't, they're like, wow, how long have you been around? So <clears throat> you get a little bit of both.
1: Wow. And how's, by the way, the reception to your book, uh, I i saw the book. It was in the Wall Street Journal, the review section, which I read every Saturday. And not only did you get a write-up, you got a picture there. pretty I didn't, I didn't know you were 5'3". The way they angled that picture, you look pretty... pretty uh, I don't know. Pretty impressive. I looked. And I said, "This lady has to be. You know, she's totally in command." It was. It was a great piece.
0: Thank you. Well, you know, they. I'm facing the sun in that, so I look like I'm being very frowny. And
1: oh, you look like Patton. You look like George C. Patton in front of the. floor. He Actually, what I'm
0: doing is 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 that a giant cicada coming towards me? That's
1: <laughs> what I'm thinking. Uh, so, wh- why do you think you got, your book is getting such a great reception? You know, you told me that. You have a byline. I think it was in the journal, the Wall Street Journal. Was it? Right? Um,
0: no, it was in Time Magazine. Time Magazine,
1: right. An excerpt, right, right. Yeah, One an of excerpt
0: the... on Charity Adams' story.
1: Okay, so you had a time that you you were in the Wall Street Journal, which is not an easy place to get to, especially for a new book that, that you have, uh, which is really about something that happened 75, 76 years ago. Uh, uh, and it's really uh, climbing up the charts. i look looked at it on an Amazon, the amazing reviews you're getting. What do you think, what nerve do you think it struck that people are so interested? I'll, I'll tell you what I think, but, um, you know, but my, what, I, what, what I got out of this, but I want to hear from you.
0: I think it, it strikes the nerve of, it. well, part of it is the way it's written, because it's not written like it's a regular history book, which will be all narrative or all prose. By bringing in conversations and making these be real people who you would want to meet, I think that changes the perspective of the stories a bit and makes them accessible to new generations who think World War II is way far back there beside the pyramids, you know, thousands of years ago, when in reality, it's just yesterday.
1: Wow. And you just started, right? This book just came out, when, a few weeks ago, I think? or
0: Uh, August 3rd, yeah. August
1: 3rd. Holy smokes. So, really, it's catching fire. Well, you know, when I read it, I said, this definitely could be a you know Netflix miniseries. You know, one chapter on one person each time. I love it. Uh, I get a finder's fee on that if you definitely make that deal. But I, th- I think it's really, yeah. I think it's... I, you know what? I, one thing I did when I was reading parts of these stories, and I, I think I told you in our, in our first conversation on the phone, I wish they went longer. There was so much more that I wanted to know about these people. And, like, for example, I'm just looking through my notes... Um, Hilda Eisen, there was so much there. This is a lady who was captured twice by the Nazis, twice she escaped, uh, husband was killed. Uh, uh, in the, uh, they took her husband, they killed him. She jumped out a two-story window and she was going to be raped or planning to be raped, captured, this lady had moxie, and uh, she fights with the resistance in Poland, goes back to her, just terrible, terrible. And she goes ahead with her husband in America, in California, and builds an enormous business of uh, egg supplies. They sell with little chickens, and all of a sudden they're just just amazing.
0: One of the the biggest egg supplier west of the Mississippi by the time they sold the business in 2000. And when they started, neither of them spoke English. You know, they they saved enough money to buy about $5,000 worth of chickens. And she would package the eggs up, and he'd sell them on the back of his bicycle. And as the bill... The business grew. They moved it to Norco Ranch and changed places. So he's running the business part and she's doing the marketing. So they they were total business partners in this. But to come from absolute, absolute nothing to that is just amazing. And I have to think that to some extent it honors both of them lost their entire families. She lost all her brothers and sisters and her parents. They were killed in one of the camps. He survived Auschwitz along with his brother, and his stepbrother was the only other one who survived. So, the family they created, the legacy they've built, the people they've helped, came from the absolute worst time in our history.
1: Yeah, and they gave hundreds of thousands of dollars away for uh, charities and foundations, and wanted to help others. Just, just absolutely amazing. I think that's you know what what strikes me about this uh your book, and I think. More, I, well, I can't speak for why it's, why it's catching fire the way it is. I think what you did is you made these people very human. You, you showed all their frailties. And when you're reading it, you say, you know, they weren't Wonder Woman. They had fears, but they just barreled through. They just said, you know, like, like you mentioned before, the, uh, the uh, Army Creed, the Soldier's Creed, uh, mission comes before everything else. And I think that they framed it that way. And you get that feel simply because uh, the way you wrote it. You you know, you wrote it from a, I'm not trying to dig too deep here, but you wrote it from a position of experience. You weren't any of these women in, yeah. per se, you didn't, but you understood how the mission was, what the mission was there. It wasn't a matter of getting any reward. It was, we have to accomplish, I have to accomplish, if it's all on my shoulders, I got to get this done.
0: And they got it done. Yeah, and they were young too. So when you're 17, yeah. 18, yeah, I can do this. I can do this.
1: Wow, Alice Marble. she's not always young. She had a career as an amazing tennis player. And she's riding around getting stopped by Nazis and just crazy. Absolutely crazy. Folks, the name of the book is The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, it at the at the worst, you'll learn something. Uh, and at the best, you'll really have pride in what people can do when they put the mission above themselves and... They have dedication to a cause. I don't I I think that's just my inspiration that I got out of your book. And if you just did that, I think you've done a tremendous service to the public.
0: Thank you. Thank you so
1: much. And and I say this sincerely, I want to say it because I say it to everyone and I really mean to thank you for your service. It's because of people like you that. I'm able I was able to sleep (laughs) soundly at night and raise a family and Worry about how to make money in the market while you were out there, uh, you know, putting your life on the line. So uh, uh, this country and uh, all of us who have not served owe people like you a tremendous debt of gratitude. And thank you.
0: Thank you. And now I'm going to listen to you.
1: (laughs) Great. (laughs) Great to hear. Uh, General Marietta, the name of the book is The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line. Go out and get it, folks. It really, really is an amazing read. Thank you so much, General. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.